Welcome to Between Data and Risk podcast. Today, we'll be discussing how to build and manage innovation labs as a method of implementing digital innovation in your company. To give us an insight into this topic, we have invited Richard Turin, author of the best-selling book, Innovation Lab Excellence. Stay tuned. If you're a business owner or senior manager, you probably had more than enough about all the wonderful opportunities awaiting you in the era of digitalization. Whether it is big data, cloud, data science, or whatever buzzword is currently trendy. If you would like to hear someone dissecting these claims and showing you what it actually takes to improve business processes, you're in the right place. This is Between Data and Risk, where we discuss real-life examples of what works and what doesn't in the world of business operations. Hello, I'm Artur Guya, Cognition Search Solution Chief Risk and Strategy Officer, and with me is my co-host, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siviak. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Between Data and Risk. Today, we'll be talking about innovation labs, and we're excited to have with us today our guest, Richard Turin, best-selling author of Cashless and Innovation Lab Excellence, who agreed to share his experiences with us. Hello, Richard. Hello, Archer, and hello, Marin. It's a pleasure to be here, and hello, everybody out there in podcast or YouTube land. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so let's let's start with, uh, with 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 a question for you, Richard. Innovation Labs. You you you've written a book about this, Innovation Lab Excellence. You're clearly very much invested in the subject. So uh, why are why are they good for 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 any industry? Are there any limitations really where where they could be used? Oh, I've got a great answer for that. There's no limits, and the reason is our society is going digital. And it's happening mm-hmm. so fast that very few companies or very few governments can actually keep up. So what we see as is that innovation labs are used as a tool, a wrench, a screwdriver. They're used as a way of bringing innovation into organizations, and they're very effective at doing it. All right, but you know, uh, I would I, I I would argue that. As much as screwdrivers or wrenches are very useful tools, I can imagine at least some, uh, I don't know, medical facilities when they are not of the best use of the professionals there. At least I I, I wouldn't prefer my surgeon to use them uh, on me. Uh, So like... is it really for everyone? Like, what is okay? So, but we, we should start maybe what is an innovation lab that you describe? Like, what is like what? What is the great idea behind it? What's the difference between Innovation Lab and, let's say, R&D Center of old uh, that some companies still have somewhere in their... Sure. When we think of R&D centers, we're really thinking of long-term research and development that takes years and somehow brings a new innovation, patentable product to market. Something very, very um, long-term that has a scientific, usually a scientific component to it. Mm -hmm. And with innovation labs, we're thinking in most terms today of digital innovation, though they are used for many other types, but most today are digitally oriented and they're not designing in most cases a new, they can be, but most are not designing a new scientific product. They're bringing 
features from companies that are not digital into the digital world. So a big distinction and somebody, right, I'm going to say this now because somebody out there is going to say, well, banking products are digital. They don't, banking is already a digital service and the product is in fact patentable and the product is in fact um, digital. And that is true for that, for, for money in particular. Um, mm-hmm. But for most companies, it's bringing existing products and services into the digital age. Actually, actually, as someone who has come from from the financial industry, I would slightly disagree because I think fi- uh, a lot of, of finance is not digital yet. It's becoming digital and it requires a lot of innovation still to be properly digital. Uh, the, the, the amount of processes in, in financial industry that are still done by, by, by hand and, uh, you know, by phone. This is this you know old age. I, I've I've even worked in teams where we used fax. I mean, you know, for, for some of our listeners, you know, you might look it up because it's ancient technology. <laughs> so the the answer is, of course, I couldn't. I'm my specialty is really financial technology and specifically banks. And when I wrote Innovation Lab Excellence, I took my experience with banks and the banking and fintech finance world mm-hmm. and brought it. But what, what, so when I wrote the book, I wanted to generalize it. So okay. but my experiences with banks, and I couldn't agree with you more. Banks need to go <laughs> digital. And, and I've been writing recently on LinkedIn. The latest thought is if they don't go digital, the smaller or mid-tier banks who are challenged in this area are going to go bust. Because the only way that money will be moved in the future is, is digitally. And I wrote a book called uh, Cashless, which says it all. Mm-hmm. The money is, you know, is, we're going to live in cashless societies. So, yes, banks need a lot of work in that. No argument in the least. Uh, <laughs> but when we are talking about, the, the, let's say, cashless society, you actually piqued my, my, my interest here because it's not just banks' decision, I think. It's uh, money. It, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not from the banking industry, unlike, unlike Arthur, but I would guess that money is a highly regulated market, <laughs> so to speak, and it requires policy making, I would say, decision to move uh, society into, into cashless uh, environment. So uh, does, it, does it really uh, fit the needs of policymakers to move into cashless? Uh, yeah, oh, the, the answer is absolutely in the way that policymakers and government is dealing with the increased need for digital currency in what are increasingly digital societies is through a product called central bank digital currencies, which we make it clear is not crypto. It is a government issued digital currency that is the same as your normal paper money today. And of course, where I live, I'm coming to you from chi- Shanghai, China. Um, the government is the most advanced in the world at doing this. And China has essentially a, a cashless society based on what are called payment apps, WeChat Pay and Alipay. But the point that you make is right. China has gone cashless through these WeChat Pay and Alipay apps because the government allowed them and they changed policies. 
And now they're going even further with what we call central bank digital currencies. But all of them are innovations. And the Chinese government actually runs a, an, a, a, an innovation lab for digital currency. So that's where their digital, central bank digital currency came from, an innovation team. Okay, so, so, so like let's, let's, let's talk about the innovation labs now. Uh, how... You know what? What? What is the the, the basic model for for innovation lab? Because there have been there have been many uh, kind of uh, paradigms tried, and and some of them were better. Some of them were there was the the, the famous skunk works from from Lockheed Martin, if I'm sure. if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, but there is the the then, then there's the dragon then model, which came from America. Which I, I don't think it's really a proper innovation lab. It's more a a kind of reality show for uh, you know. People who think they they know something about innovation. What's what's your 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 kind of uh, favorite model for for building an innovation lab? Sure. Let's let me before I can answer that, I have to let people understand what fundamental need they are solving. And the fundamental <laughs> problem is that we are going into a digital era, a digital age, and mm -hmm. that the number of people who can do this digital work is very limited. So if you run a traditional company with many different business divisions, you can't afford to put a digital team in each one. So what you need is a shared resource within the company. So you concentrate this group of digital people who are very expensive. They, they cost a lot of money. That's just the reality. So you concentrate them in one place and you make them a shared resource for the company. Now, that's a resource issue that they solve. And the next problem they solve is, of course, innovation. You have a team of experienced managers in your company, and they're good people. They understand their business. But what they don't understand is how to make it go digital. So what the innovation team is, does is to supply the manpower and supply the thought process, the know-how of what is possible in the new digital environment. Now, what's my, uh, so with those two needs, what you basically end up is with a separate group of people who are innovators and are this shared resource. That's resource, pardon me. That's the essential layout of an innovation lab today. Now, how to structure it? Number one, and we hit on this earlier, it's great. It's not an R&D team. It's not there to do primary research. It is not a business unit. So it is not a profit-making entity within the company. The, and so those are the, those are the two. And, and the third one I'll, that we can talk about more later, it is not really tasked in most cases with building a final product so much as understanding what that product should be so that another specialist team can be brought in to build it. You know, there's specialist teams that, that build final software. That's usually not their job. So those are the three criteria, I think, that, 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 that go up to go into speak to the structure of the laboratory. Okay, so... 
how do how do you then uh, because you you did mention that uh, it's it's an expensive resource how should companies fund it because this is this is you know and any any business owner or, or or ceo that's going to listen to us is going to to immediately think how am i going to get money for this oh abs- absolutely and so the, so the answer is um that the innovation labs are are cost centers and i and there's no other way to look at it you know but business business ceos already have a lot of cost centers so you know it's not unique or new that a group of people are considered a cost and not necessarily a a profit center however that said innovation has to be tied to profits eventually you have to make money with exactly. it so there has to be a rather subtle system that does the following it says we are going to keep you here we will reward you if you have profitable solutions that contribute to the company and at the same time and this is the hard part we are not going to penalize you if some of your ideals ideas fail because that's the whole problem innovation and agile development in the computer world which is all built around is built around the fundamental premise of failing fast um so you can't penalize the failure now that doesn't mean everybody gets a free pass but it means that the way that we treat this innovation team has to be um has to be a little different now i want to go back to something you said before and you took an example that i wrote about in my book which was the lockheed skunk works now their design they really were a post world war 2 or world war 2 cold war spin off of lockheed and they gave us fa- famous airplanes like the sr72 which went real fast and did neat things so, they gave so us 71 71 okay and the the U2 spy airplane but what you don't read about is that they crashed a lot of airplanes and sadly the, the pilots <laughs> okay. oftentimes perished with it but the point is they still exist in in a limited form to this day but the point is they were not penalized every time that an airplane crashed they learned from it and they went to what came next and that's the model that innovation labs have to be uh founded around it's, it's very important. very 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 interesting like first just to, to to justify like when when it comes to pilots more test pilots die died in car and motorcycle crashes than in actual plane crashes these guys are <laughs> adrenaline junkies and it's a statistics that says that more of them died in motorcycle and and car crashes than in 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 plane crashes so it's not like lockheed took some poor souls who didn't know what they do and they crashed them against the ground let's let, let, let's let, let's not make them uh, that evil and the second one we spoke with uh, dr nick swain who is a president of the idaho college in one of our podcasts and we spoke about allowing people to fail and we spoke and also in our work when we create uh, risk frameworks we quant- we try to quantify the risk and every business unit and especially if they work in innovation area it's it's especially important is for them to understand how much risk meaning cost they can 
uh, actually burn throughout the year. And Arthur is very vocative when we talk to our clients that they cannot penalize people for taking calculated risks and burning the, the risk appetite and the risk tolerance uh, because that's what the risk is for. They are not expected to the same when 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 we talk about data mesh we I, I i work and i'm very vocative about the need of the cooperating of business people with data people uh within within domains it's again uh not everything will work work work, work perfectly there are some initiatives which require some insight testing and then quickly scrapping and um, not forgetting but not developing further so it it really falls into into the story that 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 comes out from from, from our podcast well uh, I, congratu- I, I congratulate you and arthur because you are dealing with the single biggest issue facing innovators everywhere and that is a traditional corporate environment now i worked 18 years in banking and typically mm. if you were an innovator in banking and you didn't make money it was the end of your career. It was either it was <laughs> it was succeed or die. So failure was not an option, but it hindered and continues to hinder innovation in the banking environment. So that is the singular psychological change required in all corporate environments is that failure must be tolerated. And that's a switch from Failure is to be penalized, and uh, that's so. So it, that's ninety percent right there. Uh, it leads me to another question. So let's say that because we we try to 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 bring some practical advice to to, to senior management and C level um, executives. So except allowing the innovation lab to fail, like what kind of support they can provide? Let's say they want to start their own innovation lab. Uh, and you know they probably should start with uh, reading your book, but before they get there, they yes. want to start something you know immediately. Uh, other than 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 you know thinking of, uh, el- they, we will have to fund it. We will have to fund it centrally, and do not expect immediate returns. Uh, what kind of support they can mm, offer to the innovation lab? Sure. And that's a wonderful question. And yes, thank you for plugging my book. Yes, read my book. But the, but, <laughs> but the re- look, the reality is that earlier on, when we saw the first, the earlier generations of innovation teams come on, what you saw was that the CEO would hire them, put them in a corner and then say, do your thing. And I don't really care about you guys. So <laughs> the biggest thing that a C, the, the biggest things, a plural, that a CEO can do other than funding the lab is to support the lab by empowering and encouraging or demanding, is that strong enough, that the entire executive team below him understands that the lab is there to help them and that they must use them as a service to improve their businesses. So it can't be, and this I've seen, and it's, it's better now. I mean, you, I mean, my book now is, is a few years old, um, still equally relevant, but CEOs understand now because they're getting hammered by digital competition in many sectors, that digital is critical. So you can't just buy the guys and put, buy the, the team and put them in the corner. You have to ensure 
that the innovation culture trickles down into the organization. And there's lots of people in your organization who want love and are great innovators if they have an outlet for their capabilities and giving them access to that team gives them that outlet and gives them that beautiful way for them to innovate. Okay, so I've got a different, different, different kind of viewpoint that I want to ask you about. You've, we've got this, the, the executive team of the company and they're really into innovation, right? And then in, in my view, the best innovators in a company are probably not external people that you bring in, but the employees themselves, they, they work, live and breathe the, the, the process of the company. They know it best and they, they probably have a ton of ideas. So, uh, how do, how do you actually encourage people to, to see the innovation lab as something that, that where they can, they can, uh, explore these ideas and, and, and make them, them, uh, you know, bring them to life rather than an addition to their, you know, something that they put on as an addition to their daily job, you know, they have to spend eight hours at, at their work and then maybe some of their free time in the innovation lab and it's just, just not worth it. Yeah, no, no argument. Okay, so that to a large extent is the job of the innovation lab. So mm -hmm. what the innovation lab, what their, their job is after they're hired, after they have some team put together is to say, look, our job is to go out to what I call the BUs, the business units, mm -hmm, and find which ones are interested in working on innovation, who has ideas, and it's up to them to go out and to make these people feel comfortable. Now, I'm very clear in my book to the labs that if they go out and they find that there are 10 business units and two guys two business unit heads are adamant that they're not really into innovation, go to the next ones. Go to some place where innovation is welcome. Don't waste your time because you can't convince everyone. And what the lab is better off doing is finding these people who can innovate or want to innovate. And they do that with innovation programs where they go out and they do team building and they do innovation challenges at the business units. And they, after a while, can sort of filter through and figure out who, who is capable. And I agree, the best ideas are from the innovators who largely have been told, sorry, the best ideas are from the innovators in the business units who have largely been told to sit down and shut up and don't innovate. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's I lived it, you know, and that's the truth. Many are told, we, it's a great idea. We'll do that next year. It's a great idea. Why don't you take it someplace else? We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the resource. So in an ideal world, the, the innovation lab goes out. It runs a, a, a bunch of ideation programs or or. That's a buzzword. I don't really like it. It runs a, a series of programs, finds innovators, finds ideas, and then eventually does a deal where those innovators in the business unit can come and work with the, with the innovation team on some shared basis so that it's not just extra work. It becomes part of their job for a period of time to see what innovation can do.
and they'll get an idea. Look, this idea, after you know maybe a six months you know shared resource with the, the innovation team, maybe they say this is what the product could potentially do. Here's how it saves us money. This is what it costs to build it. Do we like it? You know, not all of them will get through, but some of them will. So, so, so I would like to repeat it uh, loud and clear. It's important that you allow people to do it in their work time. So part of the support that C-Level should, should uh, provide is to enable people to innovate as a part of their work. Did I get it correctly? Uh, absolutely. Like, it should not be extracurricular activity or an extra <laughs> workload that they do in the evening. People who have a great idea should be given the time at work as part of their job to work with the innovation team. Now, how much? Uh, we, let's let's leave it's that a for case some other case. Time, you know, but now let, I want to make one thing clear. An innovation lab that does not do this, that does not, and it, now this happens. Innovation teams think they're really smart. They're digital guys, and they're like, well, we know the digital world. They don't know a damn thing about the company and the products in that new company they're working for. So if an innovation lab closes the doors, they are destined to fail every time. Absolutely. Because mm -hmm. number one, they don't understand the real products. And number two, even worse, they have made enemies within the company. The business unit leader goes to an executive presentation and the innovation lab says, you are doing it all wrong. We have a better way. <laughs> oh, I, but I, I have, now it's very interesting. In my job at IBM, when I ran their, innovate, their financial technology innovation lab down in, in uh, Singapore, this is a great story. I would meet with the bank innovation leads or innovation lab heads. And some of them were very young. And they would come to me absolutely destroyed. And they'd say, well, the, the bank doesn't want to let us innovate. They don't like our products. And I said, you know, are you talking to that guy? And they'd say, no, but we have the solution to the entire back office for the bank, but they don't want to let us do it. And I'd say, you didn't talk to the head of the back office, or you didn't talk to the head... And they said, no, but we, we know it will work. And they're young people. And I said, look, you know, I'm already, you know, 18 years in banking. I said, they're going to kill you. They're, they're, but not only are they going to kill you, these guys have been in these companies for 15 years. They're senior execs. They're not just going to kill you. They won't lose a minute of sleep. And you you represent not even... A, a speed bump or a roadblock you're nothing to them they're you know they're gonna they're gonna slam your idea in two seconds and go back to the meeting laughing to themselves from that meeting they'll go back laughing and saying those young kids they're so cute if they do that again I'll kill them. <laughs> if, if they do that again i'm gonna kill them even harder you know i mean really i mean I'm, I'm, those are that, that is a real story uh, for for real no, I, I can believe so, because, you know, as I said, working with, with, with data, it's like, you know, I don't know if it's a subset of digital or, or parallel, but it's, uh, I, I know the stories of, of data people who 
who tried to improve things they were coming in or you know the consultancies that came in and said yeah you do it all wrong we we, we have our workbooks and we will tell you how to do it we didn't even ask what the problem is no we, we just we know better it's uh, <laughs> one thing one thing is because what you said that this the senior senior execs they uh they can allow themselves to to actually smash it uh but the problem is the senior execs usually they are right like you know these new people they just don't know the problem so it's not the problem new against old and just trying to buy in but understanding the problem this is something that i promote very much if you want to be a data scientist try to understand the problem try to understand what the data represents try to describe the reality and if you cannot describe reality you are not really solving any anybody's problem you are preparing some models and you are throwing the actual wrench into the wheels of uh, of the turning machine because if you are a data consultant and you come into the business, this business works. They made a working business, respect it. And this is about the basic respect towards the, maybe you can improve it a little, hopefully, maybe, uh, usually. Uh, still, uh, be respectful. Otherwise, you're making a fool of yourself. And, you know, I'm already old and bold, and I learned to respect the hard way. <laughs> Look, I want to I want to jump on that because that's really um, first of all, data is at the root of all digital innovation. So, data and data analysis is at the absolute core of all digital innovation right now. And innovation labs, okay, you can't innovate. I don't want to say well, you can't innovate without it. Certainly, certainly there are non digital labs that that do this. Fine, but the real the great thing that you said, and I talk about this a lot in my book is look for these incremental gains that show steady progress. And the reason is, and again, this comes from my own experience. I know a lot of innovators who come in with really big ideas and they're going to make a big splash or a big change. And the innovation is always, well, it's coming in six months or in another six months. I need more money. And that is another way that innovation labs die because the big innovation is always going to come sometime in the future or with more money, more people, more funds. And what they don't show is any incremental improvements, which are key for the business units and the CEO to gain their respect and to keep them turning the money on. So, so it is, uh, yeah, it is and, the agile so, mindset both, that's required, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's really funny because you really see that attitude within the, you know, and, and I, I don't say it's all wrong. I tell in the book, I say, look, if you really believe that, do it, but have these other incremental projects. Don't, you know, don't be saying that you're going to you know, and so here's what I say. I say, do not, and under any circumstances, use the word disrupt. Disruptive. <laughs> Please. As soon as you use the word disrupt, you have lost all of the senior managers in that institution. Transform? <laughs> yes. Disrupt? No. But if no. you're looking for true disruptive innovation, in most cases, that's a path to failure unless you're showing, unless you can show some incremental work alongside. I pat, so. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, but it leads me to to, to question of, uh, because as we said, it's a cost center, 
the, the innovation lab is a, is a cost center. Uh, it needs to show incremental value added, which I totally agree. And when I was running analytics teams, I was always, you know, adamant on providing value on every step. So uh, sharing the byproducts and trying to find additional business value in, in any kind of project that we run. Like in the meantime, let's release and add value on, on every step before we will make a big change. So I, I, I just couldn't agree more. But the question is, do you have some advice on showing the actual value? I, I know from experience, but sometimes it's really hard to it, qualitatively, you can say, okay, this will improve, this model will improve your accuracy of your, of your predictions. I don't know, be it uh, predictive, uh, uh, prediction of sales or, 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 or predictive uh, demand uh, forecasting. Uh, so you can say, okay, better models will improve it. But in some projects, it's really hard to, to, to calculate the, the, the business value. What's your advice for people who run these labs? Or, you know, also, what is your advice to people who have these labs? Like, should they always expect, okay, give me the hard numbers, like you have a project. I will buy more rubber. I will make more Wellingtons. So we will sell more Wellingtons. We will have more money. It's a simple, simple, simple thing as that. Uh, with digital projects and data projects, it's not that simple always. I, I, think. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's why um, for innovation labs, when we look, I have a chapter dedicated to metrics. You know, what are the success metrics? And I say that the labs have to have essentially two, two components. One is hard numbers and the other are soft. And both have to be agreed with before because many of the projects don't have hard numbers. So just as you said, I mean, you made the case. And so here in these soft numbers, you have to have some sort of idea of, okay, well, we got this, you know, our, our, the timing for responding to a client is now down by 50%. Whatever, whatever soft metric you can come up with, you have to use. In other words, there has to be this, these two components, and I'm hard pressed to come to, you know, I, I, depending on the innovation, the soft metric will change, but as, but, but overall for a lab, they have to have a soft metric, for example, as the number of projects, the number of success failures, and then within each project, some concept of, well, we didn't make more money, but we did good. We made something better. And, if, and, and look, that's not hard. At the start of any project, there is an expectation of what can be made better. So coming up with a soft number for that is not, is not hard. And you see it in data analytics. Uh, it, it's harder there because data analytics, when they go in, they really don't know what they're going to find all the time. And <laughs> I'm not sure that they're, you know, I, I'm not sure... I, I'm not a data analytics project expert. You are, but I think that the uh, the soft goals are probably harder on a on a pure data project than they would be on, a, say, an innovation project, which is at the start broader in nature. Uh, that's true. That's, that's why I said that I I was adamant on showing value on every step because in the end we sometimes we weren't sure how far we will be the data, the quality of data. 
or, or, or availability of data will, will let us go. So we had to show on every possible step and add a little value. So if we fail the big one, we can still say it was still worth the time. So that's the, exactly the reason. But my, my, my uh, personal, let's say, take on uh, finding the soft numbers was, again, talking to business people and understanding what we will be working against. So uh, if you want to just take data and say, oh, this is the value I will add, it's, it's much harder than talking to, to heads of departments that you work with and telling, okay, what's your problem? What this data is concerning? When you understand the data, you can say, okay, we will try to reduce, as you said, I don't know, time to respond, or we will try to improve accuracy by this percent, or uh, we will reduce this number of, of warranty returns, or, you know, whatever the head, like the soft numbers are pretty easy to come by if you work with business. If you don't work just pure numbers, but you try to help business. And these people know what they deal with and what this data means. So if you if you try to, as, as we said before, close your doors and you know just sit in front of a computer and play, play play a smart person, good luck with that. But if you if you are working with business, the business helps you. They 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 have actual problems that you try to solve, and the numbers are there. You just need to reach out and say, okay, let's try to you know tackle this one. Let's try to push it a little. <laughs> sure. Uh uh, I, I wanted to ask you about governance because uh, we, uh, Marian and I recently wrote an article about uh, federated governance models. One of the problems that we uh, kind of uh, tackled was that uh, very often you get uh, you either get a centralized governance model where you know it's it's uh, bottlenecked and and very very old school. When you decentralize com completely, you either get anarchy or you get uh, the kind Silence. of the loudest voices uh, pushing their agenda. Uh, so, in an innovation lab, uh, you you certainly because you you will probably have if if you have ten innovators, you will have twenty different opinions, and uh, it's uh, how how do you then uh, put some some model around it so that the govern the, the 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 innovation actually goes in a in a net kind of controlled direction uh, out of this whole Brownian motion of, of uh, ideas and experiments. And, you know, how do you give it a, 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 a direction and a magnitude? Yeah, I like the concept of Brownian motion. I absolutely adore that. That's a great, uh, great <laughs> way of looking at it. Um, so the answer to that um, is that within the lab itself, I'm a promoter of a more standard, you know, there's a boss. Because <laughs> oh. without now, this is not a dictatorial boss. You know, this is a, you know, this is a modern, a modern innovation lab boss. And they listen, but I don't, I don't believe in a, you, I don't think you really can have, for the reasons that you explained, I don't really see a decentralized innovation lab model working because people will just go all over the place and that's a real problem. I don't think that's the goal. The goal is to take talented people, to get them focused on problems um, and to uh, ensure that these problems are relevant, the problems they're working on are relevant to the business. So as far as inside the lab, I'm a big proponent of putting a couple of people who worked in the company 
into the management group. If you know, they're usually they're real. They're usually just a boss, and and there's no. Most labs have a boss and everybody else. All right, <laughs> I'm sure the bigger ones. I'm look. I'm sure there are larger ones that make an exception to that. But most of these teams are, you know, 20 or 30. They're not too, in most cases, they're not 200. There may be, there, there are, excuse me. Um, but uh, I, I'm a big proponent of putting people of, from the business units or from the business um, into, the, into the innovation teams because they know a lot and they will contribute to making it, um, to making it meaningful. So, I'm sorry, I'm kind of old school for this. I don't, I don't, I don't believe um, that there can be such a thing. I don't want to say don't believe. That's hard. Never say never, right? But the decentralized approach to innovation labs with small teams is, uh, in my view, not particularly productive because they're small. They have limited resources, so they they don't go anywhere. So how does that uh, kind of chime with uh, the agile mindset? And, uh, you know, one of the, we spoke in, in one of the previous episodes about the agile manifesto. We actually dissected it uh, point by point. And one of the points there, which we actually are very ambivalent about, is the idea of self-organizing teams. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, a, a truly self-organizing team is a bit of a utopia, uh, but you do need a certain agile mindset in any in innovation. I think those those two things absolutely go together. You cannot have a, 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 a fully traditional, you know, roles divided team without without uh, without agility do some innovation because they 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 will be too kind of congealed for that. It's, it's almost I think that the, the word. But uh, how how would you how would you then? apply self-organization in such an environment? I, I, I don't, look, I see, okay, so when I think of agile, I think of a project-based way of looking at the world. And on that project, I don't have any problem with people organizing themselves on that project on the way that they deem the best. So, I, you know, I don't, exp you know, look, if there's a boss of an innovation team, then he's got, let's just say he's got 50 people and he's got 10 projects, you know, I, I, how they organize themselves to get the job done for most of these people is not really their concern. Their real, their real mm -hmm. concern is what are you working on as opposed to how exactly are you working on it? Yes, that's their concern as well. But most of these teams, they know that the only guy who can do this kind of coding that they need is this person, or the only resource who can design the universe, the user interface, is that person. So they're going to, you know, they're if you have fifty people, it's clear who needs to do what. So I, I don't have a problem with self-organization at the agile project level. Okay. That does not mean the entire team is self, the entire innovation team as a unit is self-organized. I don't think that would probably work. Well, I, I guess it, it tights uh, to, to, to our federated model where you have the central vision uh, governed at, at the central level and operational freedom at the, at the local levels. 
So it's taking this idea and bringing it a, a step down. So you have, I, I'm still, I personally, you know, the teams that I led, or the, the, the analytics teams, you know, uh, we weren't all equal. I, I was the boss and everybody knew it. It didn't mean that I was, uh, sometimes I had to make a decision when there was the, the, the work that nobody wanted to do. Someone had to have power to say, this work also needs doing. And this time you vol- you're being voluntold to do it. Good luck. Take it to, you know. Yeah. Uh, Look, let's, let, me, let me hit on a point that you just made. I think that the key issue that we're talking about is exactly what you said, which was vision. Somebody has to maintain the vision. Okay? So I, I really want to get away from the concept of um, managing the team as, uh, as a detail, uh, as a on a detail micromanagement. or micromanagement. The real issue here is not about, so this is why I'm perfectly comfortable with Agile's self, um, self-managing self teams or self-adjusting teams. I'm perfectly com- comfortable with that, provided that they're on mission, provided that there is a vision that they are universally building to. So, you know, I look at a, you know, so when I talk about, and this is, when I talk about the head of the the innovation lab head or the need for a centralized head of an innovation team, it's the vision thing. Somebody's got to keep it all in track. And look at look at um, this is a bad. I really hate this. I almost never use this company as an example, never, because it's too big. But Apple, it was the vision thing. What Steve Jobs was able to do in the early days was to keep them on vision. And that, I think, I think I'm not a Jobs fan. I'm not really, because I think he was not a very nice man. But, you know, but, uh, but and I don't want to go into analyzing Apple, but it's the vision thing. And that's what a good uh, laboratory manager has, is keeping them all on vision. The rest of it will sort itself out. I hope. Right. Uh, I I have another more practical question, if I may, Uh, because mm, you have people who are working, let's say, on a vision. They they work, they self-organize, yada, yada, yada. We very early in our conversation, we were mentioning about getting people on board and taking, uh, making people from the business come with the problems. You, You said that, you know, these people were told to shut up and, you know, innovate sometime later. So now we have this innovation lab. They can go to innovation lab and say, oh, let's innovate. Um, my little cynical brain uh, asks the question, what's in it for me? So I have brilliant idea. I could make company $100 million next year if we would turn some product digital or whatever. Uh, do you have any advice on how to motivate people rather than just patting them on the back and telling them, yeah, you did a good job for the company? Or is it enough? Maybe I don't know. Uh, like, do, did you did you encounter the problem where people were holding to their ideas just because uh, they didn't feel like it's in their job description? They they've been hired to 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 put data from point A to point B, and uh, doing something completely new is something which is out of uh, out of their current job description and their salary, and they expect something more. How? How would you approach this, like from from the senior management perspective? How would you encourage people and really incentivize them for for participating in Innovation Lab and helping you know grow the whole company? 
Well, it's very simple. In the banking world that I worked in, it was really easy. You either innovate or you're going to be fired. Now, I'm not saying that's the model. Um, <laughs> please. Uh, I'm not saying that's the model and that's the thing. But the reality is in the banking world, it's going digital at such a fast pace that most, many company employees felt motivated to, to participate in digital transformation programs because they felt it was job security. And, uh, now, that's a, ter- you know, there's the, the, the saying about the carrot or the stick. Mm-hmm. For managing now, that's clearly the stick, and that's perhaps not a nice example, but it's a real example. That, sorry, sure. it's real. It's, um, it's very so, carrot. You know, so now let's look at the carrot. You know, I mean, I would be hard pressed to say, oh, well, if you come up with a new idea, you're going to make a lot more money. The, the real, the reality that most innovators within a company can hope for is that the the product or the idea is somehow successful and that they and this happens some of the ideas coming out of the out of the innovation lab some of the lab people become part of a new business unit or a new group that works with or is related to the product that they develop and that could be somebody from a lab or somebody from a business business unit. That's about as good as you're going to get. Uh, I, you know, I'm hard pressed to say. Um, by the way, if you come up with five new ideas or innovate, you're going to get X more dollars. None that no no company in the planet is going to go for anything like that. <laughs> uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, something that you, you you write in your book. Uh, the the, the four pillars of uh, innovation that you mentioned uh, are blockchain, AI, analytics, and social. This is kind of uh, I think you, you wrote that they they encompass that that the four 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 areas where most innovation will happen. Uh, I, I would like to challenge you a bit on that. You know, what about materials technology? What about uh, kind of robotics, uh, biotechnologies? Why, why, why so much focus on on the digital technologies? Um, okay, that's a that's absolutely a fair um, fair comment. Um, robotics, I would put in the AI category. I would be, I would probably stretch it to put it in there because you need to teach the robot, and it's usually AI or analytics driven. But all right. Um, Biotechnology, I have zero experience with, and I understand that it's a a, a big area. Um, but again, when you talk about biotechnology, is it innovation labs that are working with biotechnology, or are they working with the data and the related the related AI analytics or other issues associated with the biotech? Now, yeah, I'm sure there are biotech innovation labs. But I think you're getting very close now to the R&D role if you think about Mm -hmm. them as actually working with biotechnology at some chemical, physical level. That's R&D to me. But, you know, what biotechnology, for example, spins off as far as data, that's that's the role of the lab again. But that's fair. 
we we, uh, we I think so we've bit... made kind of almost a, a full circle because that that means that you you can have uh, innovation labs in pretty much any industry it's just that they have a very specific function and uh, they should they shouldn't really uh, try to take over the, the the development of of products they they should fulfill well, their specific yeah look hold yeah. on um yeah let's make let, let's go back to that and that's just goes back to our very initial comment i think innovation labs are for all companies but i think that we need to make sure that there's a very clear line drawn especially with physical products like biotechnology, pharmaceuticals. Is an, or is an innovation lab suitable for them? Sure. Is an innovation lab going to devise the next pharmaceutical for that company? Probably not. That's not their job. Can they help those who do design new pharmaceuticals with some part of the data analysis or the, or, or the AI that goes behind the, the whatever product is being built, sure, that's what they're good at. So we, there's, I, look, there's always gray areas, but let's make it clear. Labs for, for everybody, but labs do not fully design physical, pro, physical products. That's usually not their job. They have some relation to it, though. And somebody is going to hopefully... They provide the vision. Yeah, somebody out here... Sub support. Is, yeah. Somebody is going to say, but we do this and this is what we do in our lab and you're wrong. In which case I say, no problem. I fold. I have to make <laughs> general comments. And, you know, the problem is we want a black and white world and nothing, none of this fits into it. In fact, that's why in my book, the, the, the feature of the book are um, 12 principles for working with the lab. And I don't mm -hmm. call them rules. I make a really big mm -hmm. um, distinction. I call them best practices for your lab. All right? And I say, these are not rules because some of these will fit your company, others will not. And again, when you start talking about innovation, black and white turns to gray. There are no rules. You just have to sort of keep with best practices and keep some concept of division when appropriate. That's, I think it's a good summary. I, I, th I think that's, that's, that's a perfect summary. Uh, it, Richard, thank you very much for, for sharing, sharing this experience with us. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, we we sincerely recommend your book. I I I read it in in one go, and it's 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 some some of the be best practices that you you've gathered. I've I've seen them kind of in the successful labs, and I've seen I've seen the 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 the, the points that the kind of uh, uh, what what I think you call the 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 fa failure failure modes, or or uh, uh, you know that you have a whole chapter of why 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 innovation labs fail yeah. this is this is exactly on 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 point so uh if if people wanted to 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 find out more apart from from reading reading your book where uh, how how can they contact you read more about your 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 ideas sure if you've listened this far into the podcast or into the youtube <laughs> i'd love to hear from you the best way to get me is on the fall is a through my 
internet site, Rich, R-I-C-H, Turin, T-U-R-R, two R's, Turin.com, Rich, Turin.com. It doesn't get any easier. I'm on Twitter every day, and I'm on LinkedIn every day. Um, so reach out to me through social media or wherever. I'd love to hear from you, even if you say, you got it all wrong, and here's why. I'm, I, I get that all the time. I'm used to it. I love it because it makes me smarter. <laughs> Um, I may tell you tell you why you're wrong, but those are the easiest <laughs> way. These those are the easiest ways to get in touch with me. My book, Innovation Lab Excellence, is on Amazon and it's on digital bookstores and Apple Books in 52 countries and a bunch of other bookstores that I don't know about that are all digital. Um, and my <laughs> other book about cashless, China's digital currency revolution, is also on Amazon and a whole bunch of other stores. Um, I'd be honored if you t- check them out. And I am so, Arthur, I'm so glad that you liked reading it and you read it in one sitting. You should have said that in the very yeah. beginning of the podcast. I'm so, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so again, thank you very much. Uh, I think this is all we have time for. And uh, as usual, let's hope it was of use to someone. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in digital transformation, please check out Digital Transformation Podcast, where Kevin Crane interviews best-selling authors, innovative thought leaders, and top-shelf executives exploring the technologies, processes, and people driving today's digital success. Another great podcast would be the Digital Adoption Show, where luminaries from large organizations and thought leaders in HR and L&D talk about the strategies that work, inspiring stories of execution and growth, and how they exceptionally accelerate digital adoption, topic covered in this episode of Between Data and Risk. Also, check out Brian Ardinger's Inside Outside Innovation podcast, in which he explores the ins and outs of innovation with raw stories, real insights, and tactical advice from the best and brightest in startups and corporate innovation. Finally, we recommend the Barefoot Innovation Podcast hosted by Joanne Barefoot, CEO of the Alliance for Innovative Regulation, who explores better solutions for financial consumers at the intersection of technology, innovation and regulation. As usual, all the links and the references will be available in the notes to this episode. Also, don't miss the next one, where we will be talking about data strategy, its elements and ways of developing one for yourself. To discuss with us a practical aspects of data strategy, uh, we've invited an experienced CDO, CIO, and general data strategist, Harish Kumar. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit bdr.show to find out more about future episodes and guests. You can also check out Cognition.llc for more information on Cognition Shared Solutions, our services, and other events hosted by us. For now, it's thank you from myself, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and my co-host, Artur Guja. Thank you. <laughs>